My fingers are still sore this morning from peeling and cutting up pears, but when I tasted that nectar on my morning toast, I knew it was all worth it. Welcome to Longleaf Breeze, beginners learning subsistence farming using three simple principles, approaching but never reaching subsistence. It's got to be fun while we're doing it. And we don't make allness statements. And now, Lee and Amanda Borden. Thanks, Adrian, and welcome to our podcast on a new day. We've moved to Wednesday, and this is September the 8th, 2010. We were working until late last night on those pear preserves. That's right. L- later than we had planned to go. <laughs> I guess we um, actually finished up the process about 9. And you need to know that for Lee and Amanda, 9 o'clock is pretty late. Normally, we're sort of calming things down and thinking about supper and so forth. Thinking by about, about supper. Okay, eating <laughs> supper by 7 or 7.15. Yeah. So, um Working until 9 o'clock on pear preserves was something of a a change in our routine, but we got it done. Did uh, we figure somewhere around 45 pears? um, And how many uh, pints and half pints did you We produced 9 pints and 15 half pints. Of pear preserves. Right. Um, And you need to understand that Pear preserves for us are not like the pear preserves you're accustomed to. Why don't we sort of sort of think through the process um, and how it works and so forth, and we'll talk about as we go about how our approach is a little different on pear preserves. Well, we got the idea to puree part of the pears so that we have a smooth, homogenized kind of texture, but add a few little chunks of pear that cut up pretty small, but I needed to have those chunks because when my grandmother used to make pear preserves, they were, we always had chunks of pear, fairly large ones, so it was a little bit of a necessity for me. So we've had a continuing dialogue about the chunk size because your, your tendency is to make big chunks the way you remember Grand Grand did, and mine is to make small chunks so that um, they will cook more easily and um, will spread on toast more easily. But we've had a good time laughing about Grand Grand and her approach to pear preserves, but we did that. Um, what we've done, we, we peeled and cut up the pears, and then we pureed about three-fourths of the fruit, and about a fourth of the fruit we just cut up into those little pieces. Right. Then we cook about eight cups of fruit and one cup of water for, bring it to a boil and let it simmer for about 10 minutes, then add a whole package of this no-sugar-needed pectin that we got. And what's the name of sure it? Gel. Sure Gel, which is, uh, I found out this morning, a craft company. Um, then we, when you add the, pect- the pectin, it cools everything down, so you need to let bring it back to a boil. Then we add a half cup of sugar, which is a whole lot less sugar than most people are accustomed to. Even though to. that sounds like a lot of sugar to me to put into my food that I'm going to eat in the morning. eight cups of fruit. 
I know. Well, and, and obviously, if I were diabetic and couldn't have any sugar, I'd have to come up with something else. And you can do it with Splenda. I guess there you are could. some recipes for doing it with Splenda. But to me, a half cup of sugar over eight cups is enough. It is. It it's plenty sweet for our taste. But what you end up with, we don't cook it as long. Once we uh, get that sugar added and get the sugar thoroughly dissolved, we're ready to uh, put it in the jars and put it in the water bath. So there's relatively little cooking involved for our pear preserves, which means a couple of things. One is we think there are more nutrients in there. We think the, the pears are actually, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the vitamins and so forth that were in the pears are still there. And the other part of it is they don't have the same color that most people are used to from pear preserves. Right. Ours are more what I call an ash blonde. As a lifelong dishwater blonde, I've been called. I don't like that. I prefer the term <laughs> ash blonde. Well, our pears are ash blonde. <laughs> Which is kind of a sandy tan color. Uh, with, And, of course, the chunks look like pears, which they are. They're, the chunks are white. Right. Uh, or close to white. <clears throat> and then you have this um, ash blonde body. <laughs> <laughs> but they go, that they're good, you know. And we, we, we struggled to keep the pears from turning brown while we were peeling them. Because we had to peel 45 pears and cut them up. And so we submerged them in ice water. Yeah, this was a tip from Charles and Sylvia, our cousins. And they said if you put the pears in cold water as soon as you finish peeling them, then they will not turn brown. And that did work well. Yeah, it really did. So um, I, I suppose if we hadn't done that, they might have been more of a amber brownish color. I don't know. But, but this looks more like pear to me. So I like it. I do too. Now, one disadvantage, well, I don't know if it's a disadvantage, but one factor to consider about our pear preserves, if you're thinking about doing something like this, we've already figured out you're, we're going to go through these a lot faster than you would go through regular pear preserves. That's right. I, and I'm attributing it to the lack of sugar. It's not as, you want to put more, it's almost like a, fr a fruit compote or something, that you don't mind ladling that on your piece of bread or your toast. Right. Whereas if you are using that sugary, really, really sweet kind of pear preserves or pear amber, your tendency is to treat it like a garnish and just, you know, lightly coat whatever you're eating. For some people. <laughs> but with our pear preserves, we slather it on because it tastes like you're eating fruit. So we, it's really good. If you're one of those people who likes to go to, when you go to the grocery store even, and gets the sugar-free or the low-sugar um, type of jam, you might prefer this recipe. Yes, but it's much less sweet than true, the yeah. no-sugar-added preserves you see in the grocery it store. It is less sweet than that, right. But if you're going for the little, the, the least amount of sugar possible, this is a good recipe. We recommend it. Yeah. We, we like it. We found out some interesting information also from Sylvia about the use of the water bath. What she was telling us yesterday is that she does not use a water bath at all, meaning... She gets hot mixture, the preserves, puts it in a jar that's hot and sterilized, puts a sterilized lid on it and screws the band down on it and then sets it to the side and waits for it to seal. She never uses a water bath. Um, I'm a little nervous about that. We're going to try to find out from the extension folks 
if they're comfortable with that approach. But if they are, that would save a lot of time and energy. Because what Sylvia says is it always seals. If for some reason that didn't seal, then she would process it. She would put it exactly. in the canner. Exactly, yeah. But she time. checks. After she's done that, she comes back later and checks it by pulling up on the lid to make sure there's a good seal. And if there is a good seal, which it, there is almost all the time, she, that's it. She's ready for the season, and she can store those preserves. If she doesn't get a good seal, then she either processes it or she repackets it. Or I guess if you're planning to use some preserves then anyway, you make that the one that you go ahead and right. use. Right. Yeah, we've, if, if that were to happen to us, I'd say, ah, let's eat that jar tonight or tomorrow, you know, and put it in the fridge. Because it should keep in the refrigerator for a while anyway. You right. just wouldn't want to put it in your pantry and forget about it. So our experience with pear preserves has now whetted our appetite, and we were having a conversation just this morning about what we need to can next, and we were thinking maybe we will stick our toe in the water of pressure canning. With some vegetables. So we'll keep you posted about that. Yeah, that'll be a qualitatively different undertaking, of course, because uh, pressure canning is a little easier to mess up, a um, little more demanding in terms of precision of cooking times and pressure and so forth. So um, we, 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 want, we want to be able to do it, and we've not yet done it. Um, so this may be the time for us. We'll see. Right. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about what's going on out on Veg Hill, speaking of vegetables. Please Unfortunately, do. I don't have enough bounty <laughs> produced from the summer crop to say, oh, well, let's just can what we've got out there. I will, we'll have some okra. And we're continuing to eat fresh okra on, but I don't know that we're going to have such a bumper crop at the end. It's kind of petering out out there. Yeah, the okra does seem to be kind of slowing yeah. down. So, now. Uh, and and um, the purple hull peas have pretty much quit. So, um, however, one thing I noticed yesterday and again this morning is that some pole beans, actually to be exact, they're um, rattlesnake beans that we had completely given up on. You had yeah. even wanted to cut them down. I had wanted to cut them down. You're but right. But I'm glad you didn't because now I've actually got little rattlesnake beans forming. So there's something maybe about that hot weather that did them in for a while, but the plant was still alive. So now we're getting some fruit from that, and uh, we'll see. I don't, it, again, it's not enough to can, but every now and then we might be able to have a rattlesnake bean with our meal. <laughs> <laughs> a bean. <laughs> a bean or two. <laughs> No, we, we hope we'll have more than that. I mean, you, when you say there are beans forming, there are many beans forming. Right. It's not like one or two. Yeah. And and I've planted a good many lima beans, and they're just now beginning to produce uh, fruit. And if I can keep the bugs from getting those pods, uh, we'll be in good shape for that. We have, um, as far as the things I've planted, to kind of review what I mentioned last week, I had planted some uh, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cabbage, and I've now planted three different kinds of cabbage, um, and some uh, kale, as well as lettuce and collards. So if all of those plants come to fruition, if I can keep the bugs from getting those, and I have noticed a particularly pesky type of grasshopper-looking thing that wants to chew the leaves off of them, but I, I did some spraying yesterday with a, a solution with Castile soap and water and a little bit of oil that is supposed to be organically acceptable and not harmful to the plant. If I can keep, I tried that, so if I can keep the, the pests from eating those plants, we actually should have a pretty good crop of uh, 
those leafy green vegetables. Which will carry us into the fall in terms of veg from our garden, which would be welcome. It would be welcome. Huh? That and the sweet potatoes. Yeah. We've already harvested a few of those, but we're leaving most of them in the ground. So we're hoping by fall, you know, the end of fall, we'll have a nice big crop of sweet potatoes. It certainly is promising. We're seeing lots of healthy foliage on top of the ground, and in a couple of cases, what you had was a sweet potato protruding through the surface, and you just went ahead and harvested that. Right. That's how we know that we have some under there, but how many, how far it goes, I don't know, but the leaves certainly look healthy. They're going everywhere out there. Yeah, so we we have high hopes mm. for the sweet potatoes. Yeah, the squash is doing well still, and I've got a, a good bit of winter squash on the vine. And these are squash that you planted, I guess, in the middle of the season because right. we lost the first crop. Right. And I wanted to plant some winter squash to have for late summer, early fall. So the timing was intentional on that. And uh, I like the way they look. I do too. The, the squash mm. is looking really nice still. So uh, we're encouraged about that. You were telling me the other day that you may want to go ahead and cut down the sun hemp that we have growing on Veg Hill East. Well, the main reason is that I saw one of those horrible grasshopper creatures take flight and land in the sun hemp. I thought, ah, oh, maybe they're attracted to that. Maybe that's harboring them. I don't know. Um, that's why we're taking Master Gardener, so I can find out things like that. But we did have the problem of sun hemp falling over onto the weather station. It just became too ungainly. So there might we might at least want to cut a couple of the rows back. Which would be fine with me. You just let me know what and when, and I'll be glad to do with it whatever you would like. Whatever we cut, of course, we will just allow to settle onto the surface where we hope the critters will take it down and use it to right. nurture the soil. And but then we'll need to plant something else there. So you were thinking maybe winter rye or something. We could, or we could just let the uh, sun hemp lie on the surface and let the critters work on it. I I'm, I'm not real sure at this point that we must follow that up with some other crop. We'll just, we'll have to scratch our heads about that. Right. But we did a lot of uh, work with our mulch. We bought all that, uh, we produced our own mulch. Actually, maybe I should start off by talking about the mulch that we've made on the property here out of wood. It's basically wood and branch and leaf chips. Exactly. And I have spread that methodically on all the new veg that I put out. Which to, looks so pretty. It does look pretty. And, of course, the main objective being to keep the moisture in at this point because it's still really hot during the day, and those poor plants get wilty. And, oh, so dry. Yeah. Um, I was looking at our rain gauge, and it's been, I think, 10 days, maybe more, maybe longer than that since we've had more than a trace of rain. So uh, it's very, very dry out there. Yeah. So we need to conserve whatever moisture we have for those little uh, transplants. Well, let's talk a little bit about the orchard. That was fun yeah, this, these last was... two or three days. We've been, um, we have, let's see, 17 fruit trees plus a dozen blueberries. So they they together constitute our um, orchard. And what we took out, the, the first stage was to work on the barn orchard where we have, I think, 13 trees. And what we did with each one, we had a problem with weeds growing up around them. 
So we removed the cages and mowed around each tree and pulled the weeds by hand if necessary. Then we sprayed 10% vinegar around in a big circle around each tree. Um, the idea is that's um, like organic Roundup, I guess. It's, um, it kills whatever it touches, but does not go down into the ground and kill anything below the ground. And then you followed that up by putting a thick layer of hay around each tree. And then when we replaced the cages, they really look nice. Oh, they do. They do. And we dare not leave the cages off because those are, we know we have deer out there. Yeah, it was important and, uh, to us when we started to make sure that whenever we took a cage off, we'd have it back on by that night. Yeah, because we've seen them around already, and uh, it's not even the, the height of the hunger season for them yet, so we don't want our, our trees to be eaten. And we don't have an electric fence or anything like that around the orchards, so we pretty much have to keep those trees caged until they get large enough that they don't need them. Yeah, at some point we won't be able to put a cage on them anymore, and... Presumably, a cage will no longer be needed. Right. That's what we're hoping. So right now, they're all looking, those trees look a lot better. There's one little pear tree that still looks kind of sad. Um, and that a peach moon glow at yeah, the south end. Yeah. yeah. And then one of the peach trees that doesn't look as good as the other. Um, well, and you've got a rubrum plum that just looks real bad. Yeah. But, I, but it doesn't look as though it's dying. It just isn't growing very much. Well, no. So. The one I'm thinking about, it's either losing its leaves for the fall or it's dying. Yeah, so it's the, it's the AU rubrum plum that's farthest south. Yeah, so you know we don't really have it. This is our first experience with fruit trees, so we don't really know what. But we, it, there's a chance we may end up replacing a couple of those trees, and we definitely want to plant a few additional ones for the in the in the winter time. Yeah, and that's another continuing conversation because you have the soul of my brother Dave Gray, and you want to plant. Uh, you know if three trees are good, then let's plant 86 instead. Well, while we're on that subject, though, we have him to thank, him and his wife, for the bounty of Ooh, pears we that we Oh, thank you for mentioning they that. They have a beautiful orchard, which we visited um, two weeks ago, and that's where we got the pears that, from which we made our lovely preserves. So, yeah, he does have a lot of fruit. Yes, he does. <laughs> Dave Gray is an orchard fanatic, bless his heart. But it pays and off for him. He has the most beautiful fruit trees and well-maintained and all organic. So Yeah, and we're, it's not that I'm trying to get to, to emulate that level. I want us to have enough fruit for us to be able to make jam and preserve some and still have fruit to eat. And if that means four healthy pear trees, that's fine. But I'm not convinced that that moon glow is healthy. So that's, we, we need a few spare trees. Um, and, and, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing this past year when we bought some of those trees. It could be that AU rubrum plums are not the best ones to put out in our area. We'll know more next year. We're almost out of time, but just a brief little note on our grand experiment this week when we tried to figure out what was the most efficient way to heat water for Lee's tea. I will simply say we had a knockdown, drag-out argument about it, and you were right and I was wrong. It wasn't really a knockdown drag. Well, out. you're right. We didn't have a knockdown. There have been some things we've had knockdown drag out arguments about. That was not one of them. We just had a good natured disagreement on that. But and you have a, a whole video about that, right? So I do. There's a video about it on the <laughs> site. So if you want to find out more about the most efficient way to heat water for tea, 
we've um, looked at three different ways to do it and figured out that the most efficient way is to use an electric tea kettle. So, Which was my idea. Which Yay. was your idea. So, ha ha. Well, anyway, it was good natured, as you said, and, and we had fun doing it. And we will look forward to visiting with you next Wednesday, uh, which will be our regular day for the indefinite future while we're working to complete Master Gardener and EFM together. So have a good week. Take care. You've been listening to Longleaf Breeze with Lee and Amanda Borden. We'd love to hear from you. You can call the farm at 334-625-8682. Send email to letters at longleafbreeze.com. Or you can send us honest-to-goodness mail at P.O. Box 780-446, Tallahassee, Alabama, 36078. Visit us at longleafbreeze.com to learn more about the farm, to browse our archive, and to look over our planting database. You can also read the daily farm log, check in with Lee and Amanda, and talk with other listeners. That's longleafbreeze.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.